0: digression episode about the whale and seal fisheries in the Southern Ocean. You and I know that whales and seals aren't fish, but Herman Melville and many of his contemporaries didn't know or didn't care enough to discuss their industry in terms other than as a fishery, catching, for example, the sperm whale fish. This linguistic and or taxonomic tradition of laissez-faire carries on today, with polola, scallops, crabs and beche de mer, and many other invertebrate taxa all coming to our fish markets via their respective fisheries. So it's the seal and whale fisheries as they stood at the start of human exploration of the Antarctic that is the focus of this week's episode. Whale oil, particularly the spermaceti derived from the melon of the sperm whale, was in high demand as a light source prior to the Industrial Revolution. The invention of the kerosene lantern saw the smelly, smoky oil lamps quickly replaced, but the mechanisation the industrial revolution brought to almost every industry saw the demand for whale oil sustained, as machines need oil to run smoothly, and the finest machine oils come from whales. Whales with an H. Atlantic whaling fleets from Europe and North America had so much depleted the readily available populations of sperm and right whales by the turn of the 18th century, that whaling vessels regularly rounded the horn in search of new hunting grounds in the Pacific and they found them. Sperm whales were found in abundance, and it was in these waters in 1819 that the events that inspired Melville's Moby Dick occurred, with a sperm whale ramming and sinking the Essex, putting the crew into open boats for three months in one of the most astonishing tales of survival yet recorded. An excellent account of the events can be found in Nathaniel Philbrick's book In the Heart of the Sea. With the depletion of the Atlantic whale stocks fresh in the minds of many mariners, Intense intra and international competition to make the most of the resource while it lasted meant that it didn't last long. Whalers experienced diminishing returns per voyage, but kept voyaging because the shortfall in supply led to increasing prices per unit volume oil brought to the wharf. The economic stage was set for a boom if only someone could find a new supply of the raw materials. Publications arising from Cook's forays into the Southern Ocean noted the many whales encountered. But the whales were mostly rockwills, those filter feeding species with the pleated throat and belly, which can inflate with water, which is then pushed back through the baleen by the tongue, as opposed to the right and bowmouth whales, which filter the water in a single pass. Rockwills swim faster than the bowmouth and right whales, and are negatively buoyant when dead, and so were not targeted by whalers at the time, as the technology to make use of them did not exist. The untapped opportunity represented by rockwalls in the Southern Ocean would later act as the necessity that would mother into being inventions such as the explosive tipped gun fired harpoon and the buoyancy omatic whale inflating compressor. But in the early 19th century, whaling comprised men in longboats rowing, either from a parent ship or a shore base, after a whale which was, if all went to plan, harpooned by hand, allowed to exhaust itself by towing the whaleboat around on the harpoon line and then, when lolling at the surface, out of breath, lanced to death by someone repeatedly plunging a long, sharp, steel blade into the torso until the heart was found and macerated. The whale was either towed to shore or collected by the parent vessel, where its flesh was flensed into strips of blubber, which was then tried out in the rendering vessels called tripods. These heavy iron semispheres can still be found in the embayments of former whaling stations, rusting away the sentries, often accompanied by a marker noting the historical interest, such as the fact that whale oil was Australia's first export commodity. With heat and stirring, the blubber could be encouraged to give up its finer oils and then burnt to provide the heat for rendering the next batch. Smoky and smelly, a blubber rendering operation was best kept downwind of your olfactory membranes and freshly laundered linen, if possible. The meat was used to feed the crew and baleen from the filter feeding species was kept for use in clothing and umbrellas, while the ivory teeth of sperm whales were kept for decorative purposes, most notably scrimshaw. The leftovers went to the sharks, who knew not to look a gift whale in the baleen depleted oral orifice. To digress from my digression, stories of old Tom, a male orca from the New South Wales coast at Eden, recount a reciprocal arrangement on that front. Old Tom's orca pack are alleged to have herded right whales into the mouth of Twofold Bay. When an excited orca would turn up just offshore the shore-based whaling station, a whale boat would be put out. Two books, both titled Killers of Eden, and a whaling museum featuring an orca skeleton with the teeth worn down on one side, recount how Old Tom would grip the boat's painter line in his jaw and tow the whalers to the action, whereupon the right whale would be dispatched by harpoon and the orcopod given time to eat its tongue, a large organ in the baleen whales, before the men towed the carcass to shore for processing. So, while news of large numbers of whales around the southern continent piqued the interest of whalers running out of whales to hunt, the news that they were mostly rorquals put a damper on much of the enthusiasm. It was the news regarding the seals that elicited greater investments of time and energy in southern climes seals come in two main flavours, the eared seals and the true seals. Eared seals have small fleshy lobes of ears sticking out of their heads and swim by propelling themselves with their forelimbs. When on land, they hoist onto their fore and hind limbs and move about with a rocking horse motion. True seals do have ears, but they are simple openings on the side of the head. They swim by propelling themselves with their hind limbs. On land, Their small flippers are useless and they caterpillar about in a manner we might find undignified if it weren't for the fact that they are fast enough and on occasions sufficiently vicious to make any close encounter somewhat tense. The eared seals break further down into the sea lions and fur seals. Sea lions have a thick layer of blubber which insulates them against the cold water. Fur seals have a two-layer pelt. The underlayer comprises short, fine, soft hairs. Protruding through this underlayer are longer, coarser, protective hairs. Fur seals insulate themselves against the cold by trapping air in their hair. They can often be observed rubbing their flippers against their flanks and belly, working the hairs to better entrain the insulating gas. When observed underwater, their speed and agility as swimmers is underscored by the wake of tiny bubbles they leave behind as the gas is lost again. Fur seals are found in all seas from the tropics to the Antarctic, and trade in their pelts saw Europeans establish their first colony in New Zealand. It was Chinese furriers who first invented a method for removing the coarse, protective hairs from a fur seal pelt, leaving only the soft, velvety underlayer. This provided a highly desirable material from which to make high-end clothing, and the fur seals were in trouble from that point on. Populations in South America, South Africa, Australia... New Zealand and Antarctic waters got hit hard, their pelts being worth their weight in gold. As mentioned in the geography episode, the dearth of terrestrial predators meant Antarctic seals never evolved the instinctive fear of anything unusual that their northern equivalents possess. In the High Arctic, Inuit hunters might spend days stalking a seal, working out its habits, where its breathing holes lie, and whether or not it is suckling a pup, and if so where the den in which the youngster is refuged from predators lies. Many such seal hunts end in frustration when the seal, seeing, hearing or smelling something out of the ordinary, leaves the area, leaving the hunter empty handed for their efforts. Without bears, canines, felines and humans to naturally select against the non-neophobes in a population, Antarctic seals don't even seem to register human presence, let alone fear our proximity so killing a seal in the south is simply a matter of walking to within the lethal range of your weapon of choice. The exception to this rule is with bull seals during the mating season, when any large object might be interpreted by a male as a threat to their place in the sexy time pecking order, and a target ripe for biting, beating or squashing. Harem defence among the hooker's sea lion population of the Otago Peninsula saw many a surf prematurely ended and many a dive aborted during my three years at 45 degrees south, An extra dose of amorousness in one male sea lion saw one of the marine botanists attempting to egress after a dive, dragged from the gunwale of the boat and dragged to the bottom, where he was given an enthusiastic seal servicing. Fortunately, he still had his regulator in his mouth, and sea lions are apparently something in the line of two-pump wonders, so the traumatic experience was brief and non-fatal. Jokes about Tupperware and penguins with engine trouble were de rigueur on the day. Sealers found ripe and easy pickings on the shorelines of the islands of the Southern Ocean and the economic boom in southern sealing saw much money made quickly. As mentioned in episode 6, when Bellingshausen arrived at Macquarie Island the local sealers were killing elephant seals, a true seal species, because the fur seal population had crashed under the pressure of intense hunting. Elephant seal oil returned less per unit volume cargo than fur seal pelts, but could be gained in such large quantities so readily That it was still economically appealing to hunt them and their population underwent similar rapid decline. But when we discuss sealers in the context of commercially driven exploration in the Antarctic, fur seals are the focus. The life of fur sealers was harsh by any standards. In addition to the exciting opportunities to die in interesting ways on offer to the average sailor of the era, sealers had to go ashore in small boats, clamber over unfamiliar coasts, beating and butchering wild animals, And while southern seals don't recognise this as an inherent threat, failing to kill one with the first blow, stab or shot is likely to see a large, infuriated wild animal lashing out as best it can. In the case of seals, the response to a close-at-hand threat is to bite. Seals have an all-meat diet and no dental plan, so their mouths are full of the sort of bacteria that thrives on rotting flesh. Additionally, we and seals share many diseases, most notably tuberculosis. Any seal bite is likely to be medically problematic for a human, but a bite in the more remote south, in the 19th century, was a problem big enough to put all other problems into perspective, then go all fuzzy, then go away, permanently. The first aid for a seal bite in such circumstances was immediate amputation of the wounded limb. No small talk with the nurses, no anaesthetic, just your nearest workmate putting their extremely sharp knife to use, and you suddenly only being able to count to five. While modern antibiotics give us a better chance of keeping our limbs in such situations, a seal bite is still sufficiently life- and limb-threatening that immediate evacuation to a well-stocked medical facility is necessary. But humans still come out of most encounters with fur seals on top, through superior firepower and the use of Class three levers. The ease with which seals could be caught, the large numbers of pelts that could be carried on a ship, and the high price those pelts fetched, meant the fur seals were in big trouble. Competing sealing teams asserted and fought over perceived rights to harvest particular colonies, with alleged primacy being defended on some pretty flimsy pretexts. We saw it first. We were here last year. There's more of us. Oh yeah? Well we've got guns. Sealers were among the first to petition their nation's leaders to invest in Antarctic exploration and to push for official territorial claims both these actions holding potential to serve their mercantile interests well. The enthusiasm with which these agendas were urged waned as the seal populations were pushed towards effective local extinction on one island after another. The sealers continued to push south in search of new, untapped resources. After being pushed to commercial and almost actual extinction, the fur seal population underwent a staggering reversal of fortune in the 20th century. With a relic population on Bird Island in South Georgia, breeding with such fecundity, in part due to the of krill in southern ocean waters, made available by the dearth of whales, brought about by motorised vessel, explosive harpoon, whaling practices. The sealing fishery left in its wake a gaping ecological niche, an incomplete chart of the coast of Antarctica and surrounding islands, and many, many skinned seal corpses, no doubt to the delight of the skewers. As mentioned in the Bellingshausen episode, it's likely the sealers knew far more about the local geography than has been recorded. But the incentives on offer to those who kept their financially advantageous information to themselves usually outweighed any kudos, bragging rights or bribes on offer to those willing to flap their gums about where they'd been and what they'd seen. The value of information in fisheries is still high and any scientist able to gain the confidence of local fishers will gain a window into a vast cache of unpublished oceanographic Geological and bathymetric data, and will get their fingers broke if they share that case in any way that harms the earning potential of the people who assembled the information. Misrepresentation of where seals were caught and how much their pelts contributed to the GDP of a nation sometimes worked against the interests of the sealers. Governments that might have otherwise pricked up their ears and sent naval vessels to protect national interests in southern waters were underwhelmed by calls to send those vessels to unspecified locations to defend unspecified financial potential. So while sealing earned a lot of people a lot of money, it didn't do much in terms of territorial claims in Antarctica. It was, however, the incentive for many of the expeditions I'll discuss, so it's worth giving it some attention. Among the true seals living in southern waters is a species that terrifies and fascinates me in equal measure. Leopard seals, Hydrogeleptonics, prey on penguins, other seals, and will strain krill from the water when the summer southern ocean boom is on the go. They have, on several recorded and likely many more unrecorded occasions, attacked humans. While short and svelte compared with elephant seals, or any of the other blubbery representatives of the true seals found in southern waters, they are still large compared to most animals I see from day to day. They also have an insanely wide gape when they yawn, which shows off their disturbing, which shows off their disturbing, tricuspid teeth, all the better for straining krill from the water, my dear, but still mean looking. Digression on the digression on the digressionary episode: crab-eater seals have the end point in krill-filtering teeth, their dentition appearing as though carved by a sailor who's taken their scrimshaw that extra step by performing it on living animals instead of their remains. Leopard seals have received a lot of good press from Paul Nicklin, who, when studying one in the wild, was offered a freshly killed penguin. Leopard seals, upon catching a penguin, thrash the unfortunate bird wildly back and forth, flinging it across the water and flailing it against the surface until the skin and feathers separate from the meat. The meat is eaten, while the sad, floppy, sock puppet remnant becomes sustenance for the scavengers. When a 400-kilogram predator offers to share its meal with me, I'll tuck in. But it's not the chance I'll be expected to enthusiastically chow down on raw penguin that spooks me about leopard seals. It's that they could, and conceivably might, just as readily offer me up to something else in a similar invitation to dinner or eat me themselves. I know many people who have been scared out of the water by them, and a friend of a friend was killed by one at Rothera Station in 2003. Kirsty Brown was conducting an algae survey on snorkel when a leopard seal bit her on the leg and dragged her below the surface, drowning her. My fascination with leopard seals has seen me accumulate an anthology of stories about them from people who lived the experiences. I offer up four vignettes from that cache for no better reason than they aren't going anywhere if I keep them in my head. As told to me by Steve Broney during my Otago days, in 1986... After the pole trek of Robert Swan, Gareth Wood and Roger Meir, and after the vessel sent to collect them, the Southern Quest, was pinched in the ice, holed and sank, Wood stayed behind at the old Greenpeace base at Cape Evans with two other team members, Steve Brony and Tim Lovejoy, in order to dismantle the structures and remove them from the continent the following summer. After the long, dark winter, cramped in a small box with each other, the small team made some spring treks, stretching their legs and changing their scenery. Returning to Cape Evans across the sea ice, Wood was attacked by a leopard seal, which lunged at him through a working crack in the sea ice he was crossing. Gripping his leg firmly, the seal attempted to drag Wood into the water. Brony and Lovejoy rushed to help, arriving in time to kick the seal in the face with their crampons. It let go and disappeared back into the hole from which it had lunged. As the team began applying first aid to the badly mauled leg, The seal again made an attempt at getting wood under the ice, receiving further kicks to the head for its troubles. The following summer, the emaciated corpse of a leopard seal, likely trapped in the area as winter accumulations of sea ice outpaced its ability to hold its breath. Unable to hunt in its accustomed territory and likely scaring any Weddell seals well beyond its breath hold range, the poor beastie starved, becoming hungry enough to have a go at anything likely to provide sustenance, regardless how unfamiliar and unusually packaged. Salapets and mucklucks would likely pose little problem to an animal accustomed to shaking penguins into their meat and skin components. My skipper during my time at the Portobello marine labs was once attacked by a leopard seal on the southern coast of Stewart Island. The seal grabbed his fin and wrenched it off while he was snorkeling to collect power. The seal then circled likely waiting for the victim of this bolt-from-the-blue attack to bleed out. Bill swam ashore with his good fin and managed to stay ahead of the seal as it followed him through the surf, which just seems wrong to me. Sharks leave you alone if you make it to shore. Being chased inland by a sea predator is unfair. One of my former students, then working for the Department of Conservation, was sent to a beach to watch over a leopard seal that had hauled out on the Coromandel Peninsula. The usual, SEALS CAN BITE and PLEASE DO NOT DISTURB THE WILD ANIMAL signs were deployed, along with a plastic tape fence around the sleeping beastie. A woman approached, her dog running free on the beach. You'd better put your dog on a lead, ma'am, advised Alan. He won't bother your seal, he's not aggressive. Alan didn't have time to reply that it wasn't the seal he was concerned for. The Doberman approached too close, got bitten and died. I can well imagine the insouciance with which the seal dealt the death munch. The only specimen I ever saw hauled out at Macandrew Bay in Otago Harbour. On a small patch of sand, with buses and cars passing by just metres away, and people taking their morning jog on the grass even closer, the animal simply lounged in what sun was on offer and yawned repeatedly. Clearly, it knew it was the meanest thing in the area, and it wasn't going to bat an eyelid for anything not approaching to within lunging range. I took some photographs from a safe distance, then took some more of people taking their photographs much closer, certain I would shortly be providing the images to the Otago Daily Times for the following day's front page, before and after the leopard seal attack. But the infuriatingly carefree beast posed photogenically, scratched its flanks with its flippers, farted and went to sleep. If you think you're a hard case, I dare you to go to a foreign land, let alone an alien world, and act as relaxed as that animal did when it was surrounded by the impossibly unfamiliar noise and bustle of a modern first world suburbia. For some years, Antarctic tour ships have offered diving experiences along the ice edge. A brochure advertising one of these exciting opportunities featured a picture of a diver in the water with a leopard seal. I don't know if I'm game for that. I sometimes encounter sharks in the course of my work, and if they are of a species known to be dangerous to people, or are a sufficiently large or nosy example of another species, I will leave the water by the shortest safe route. Actively advertising the opportunity to swim with a species capable of killing people and known to have done so, and known to have tried to do so on many other occasions, doesn't seem a sound idea to me. Hug-a-bear tourism would be the terrestrial equivalent. Perhaps it will end in tears. Perhaps it already has. Diving is funny like that in that accidents either tend to kill the person involved or get covered up to prevent a team from being investigated by oh reps. So unlike aviation, where pilots are encouraged to share their close shades for the benefit of other pilots, everyone in the diving industry has to learn from their own mistakes and the tales assembled by the coroner. If you have been attacked by a leopard seal or know someone who has, please pop by the blog and let me know all about it. This week I'd like to thank George Harab for his excellent geologic podcast, one of many podcasts that encouraged me to get into podcasting myself. Take care and appreciate your coffee.